0: Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bible uh, to 1213 if you have the Sanctuary Bible. It's page 1213. We're looking at the letter of Jude, the epistle of Jude, not to Jude, but of Jude. He was written by him. And... uh, I have to find it myself. It's very hard to find. It's the last one right before Revelation. So if you find Revelation, just go to the beginning of Revelation, and then you'll find Jude. And in my Bible, it's just two pages. It's quite short, 25 verses. So there's no chapters, just verses in Jude. And... Um, A few words of introduction. Again, we're in a sermon series called The Hidden Gems of the New Testament, and we're looking at those littler books that sometimes get passed over, but they're full of this great stuff. So last last week we had Philemon, which was amazing. Victoria did a really good job talking about that, and the week before was Titus, today is Jude. And uh, a reminder from Titus was that your life and... The life of your family is the first Bible many people will ever read, and today is your Bible is the next Bible that many people will ever read, and we'll unpack what that means a little bit later, but this is a letter about sound teaching, and the idea is that once people get past your life, and they're attracted by your life, and they're interested in what animates your life, which is the scripture and what we know, then... um, they might start to read the real Bible and they may start asking you questions about what they find there because it's, it's not the easiest to read book in the world. Let's be honest about that. There's a lot of words in there we can't even pronounce. You know, there's a lot of history that we need context for. And so it's going to be your job to help them understand it, which means that you need to know what's in the Bible, and you need to know what sound teaching is, and you need to know what false teaching is. That's your job as a Christian, and we call that discipleship. That's what we call it, being able to state what the gospel truly is and detect when somebody is saying something that's incorrect. And there's a lot that's at stake when somebody says an incorrect thing about the scriptures. There's actually, that's actually a pretty big problem. And I'll explain more about that later. So hold on to that thought that having good doctrine is actually a very important thing. So a little bit of background on Jude. We believe this is the Jude who was one of the brothers of Jesus. As we understand it, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah right away, which actually makes sense because brothers tend to resent each other a lot, especially when one of them is really successful. So, you know, it's just, it rings true to life. But later in life, he... Began to understand that Jesus truly was the Messiah, and so he became part of the leadership of the first church. We think this was written around the middle of the first century, so that would kind of conform to what we think. And it was a general letter. It is right now, it is a general letter to any church, but there was probably a specific church that we cannot identify now, a specific church with a specific set of problems that Jude was interested in correcting. And though this was a church that had been contending with false teachers, false teachers who had come in and were starting to teach false things. Now, one important event that we need to remember, uh, and actually it's not an event, it's a non-event, if you catch my meaning, is that people were expecting Jesus to come back imminently like they thought it was soon like super soon like within a few years maybe or a few decades at the most and as time stretched on Jesus didn't come back for the second coming and this led to a lot of problems in the church there's a lot of confusion too and some teachers that came into this church in particular used that as an excuse to say well since the Lord isn't coming but hasn't come back it means he isn't going to come back which means there's no future judgment for any of our sins, which is very convenient for me because I love to sin and I don't like consequences. So that was the false teaching. Jesus hasn't come back and so there's no judgment for sin. So now we can sin as much as we want. Eat, drink and make merry because tomorrow we die. Nothing nothing matters. None of it matters. And that was actually a doctrine that the Apostle Paul had to speak against, too. And we, we have a whole different theology about why it is that Jesus still hasn't come back, which we can't go into today in depth. But suffice it to say that perhaps we think that God is looking at the world and thinking to himself, yet more people may come to faith. More people whom I love can come into this fold. So he's not in a hurry right now to bring it back, but yet it could come tomorrow. We should live as if it could happen tomorrow. So that's some of the background. And what I thought we would do today is instead of reading the whole book, I'm going to read portions of it and talk about the portions as we read them. Does that sound okay? If it doesn't, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to do. I mean, it's just how it is. But that's what I'm going to ask you to read it with me. So open your Bible or your, your iPhone and bring us up to Jude 1, and I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to, we're going to talk about it. How's that? Okay. So it goes like this. Um, and let's pray before we begin reading, actually. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us this one gem of many, hidden gems of the New Testament, and help us to learn from it And help us to grow from it and help us to um, be able to spot false teachings and also to be merciful to people who are caught in false teaching. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So here we begin. Verses 1 and 2 are a standard greeting that you would find in a letter. It begins like this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, who is also a brother of Jesus, to those who have been called who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Okay, a very beautiful, standard, fairly standard opening to a New Testament letter. Uh, who am I? Who am I writing to you? Who am I writing to? And a standard greeting of mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So that's very nice. So we start with the pleasantries, but very quickly, and Jude doesn't have a lot of space, evidently. Maybe he had a very short parchment to write this on. We don't know. Uh, maybe he wasn't given to a lot of words, but he goes straight into the meat of the matter. That was just two verses of preamble. And now we get into it. So this is how verses three and four go. There's a warning in here. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. So in other words, he wanted to write a good newsletter. But what's going on in that church meant that that's going to have to wait. Now I have to write you a bad newsletter first because you guys are so messed up as it is. Do you see where this is going? So he wishes he could write something beautiful and flowery about the greatness of the gospel. And that may yet come. We don't have that letter But first, he has to correct a lot of falsehoods that have been having sway in this church. So I wanted to write to you about the salvation we share, but first, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And here, Victoria had it exactly right. That word contend is a Greek word. That is most often used to describe somebody in an athletic contest. Somebody who has to finish a race of endurance. So he's really, he's really saying there's work to do. You've got to work on this. You have to contend for this faith. And this is something that was entrusted to the saints and you're squandering it. How? How? It says, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, he's talking about the Old Testament, condemnation of false prophets, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So what's happening? In this little church, people have snuck in under the false guise of being just like everybody else perhaps, and they're beginning to teach their own message. And this is a message of um, godlessness, license, sometimes that word could be translated as debauchery, this is idea of of sexual probably immorality, Um, and they're denying Jesus Christ and uh, it says, you know, this, there is condemnation for this, and it's written about in the Old Testament, and these are people who have some motive, and they're, they're denying, as we'll get to it, they're denying, since Jesus hasn't come back, that there's any judgment, there's any consequence for sin, and so then you can do what you want. You can have this license for immorality. I almost said immortality. That wasn't going to work out. All right, so let's look at now... Uh, Verses 5 through 7. And without looking at your bulletin, who here was very confused by the title of the sermon? Nobody. Yay, I knew Jackie. I knew I could. Okay. So now you can look at your bulletin. And I'll give $5 to the person who can pronounce it properly, not Jack. No, I'm not. So this is a very strange word. And, um, when, and here's my hang up with it. Is in the middle of this word is the word pig. And I could never get past that. But this word has nothing to do with pigs at all. This, is, this word is pseudepigraphia, pseudepigraphia, or pseudepigrapha. They're the same word, just an extra I near the end of it. They mean the same thing. Now this comes from, basically this means a writing that has a false attribution of authorship. Okay. So if I wrote to you a letter, and I said, this is the letter of Christa, that would be, it would be a pseudepigraphical writing. Because Christa didn't write it, but her name's on it. I wrote it. Do you get what I'm saying? So why is this important? Because this is very strange. This has got scholars very uh, Twitter, is uh, that, that uh, Jude, the author of this epistle, quotes not one, but two pseudepigraphical sources, and uses them in his arguments, which is strange. Okay, so this is one of the strangest books in the Bible. Aren't you excited? Woo! This is one of the strangest and shortest books of the Bible. Now, pseudepigraphical works are works that are also non what we call non-canonical works. They're not in our Bible. And the two works that Jude quotes, one is called the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses. They may be the same document, but it was not written by Moses. So it's a epigraphical work because it was not written by Moses. It was written by somebody else and it was probably written about the same time or in the same era as this, sometime in the first century, we believe. And there's snippets of it here and there. So he quotes from that. We'll see where soon. The second book he quotes from is a book called First Enoch. Now, Enoch didn't write first Enoch. It was written also sometime in the first century. Enoch lived long ago, and actually, he never died. Remember that story? He just, one day he was walking, and then the Lord took him, and he wasn't seen again. So, Enoch is one of those kind of interesting people from the Old Testament. And so they said, Oh, an interesting person from the Old Testament. Let's put his name on this story or book or whatever that we're writing, and it'll make it sound interesting. But it's not a scriptural book. But that doesn't mean that it's a false book, necessarily. It's a pseudepigraphical book. And so it's of, in the class or class of documents or, or works called pseudepigrapha or pseudepigraphia. And so, is that, is that interesting? So this is a very strange book, Jude. He, he quotes not one, but two pseudepigraphical sources. And um, I, I made that the title of the sermon so you all would know how to spell it. That's really the only reason... Because that's not the main point of this room, but I just thought we have to get it in the bulletin somewhere. So I just I said let's let's name it that, and then when we put it on the website, maybe we'll change it to something else, like your life is the second Bible, most your Bible is the second Bible most people ever use, something like that. So we'll get to it. But what he's saying next, he's making us he's making an argument. He's trying to persuade this church that these false teachers are indeed teaching something that's false, and he's bringing scripture to bear on it, but he's also using non-scriptural sources. I'm not going to say that word again because my tongue is getting tired, but he's using these other two sources too to do that. And so here's what he says. Look at verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt. Okay, we know that. That's from the Old Testament. But later destroyed those who did not believe. This is somebody named Korah who did not want to follow God, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home. Now he's quoting from Genesis chapter 4 about these angels that come down to earth, which is also a very interesting and strange story in the Old Testament, and and took wives to themselves and had children, and these children were like giants, okay? That's another story, it's another story, but he's quoting it. And it says this is somewhat from the, the outside source because that's all, the bio, that's all our canonical Bible says about it in Genesis. But he's adding this detail, which is not in our Bible. These, these angels, he has kept them. He's, he has judged the angels, right? He's judged them. He's kept them in darkness, bound them with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So you're beginning to see his argument taking shape. If God judges angels for their forays into human history, which were a mistake. How much more will he judge human beings, right? So the judgment is coming. It's not the, the lack of the return of Jesus is not a license for you to sin as much as you want. Now we get another Old Testament example. You can take notes, by the way. This is far more of a lecture today than a sermon. Just so you know, I don't want anyone to be disappointed. This is like learning, like I've been learning. I want you to learn today. So Old Testament, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion and says if they were judged in the Old Testament, which they were, then also you will be judged. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so um, one question is why would Jude use this non-canonical source to make his point? And we don't know, but one possible answer is that may, maybe many people around him at that time were reading these things and discussing these things, and so he would just simply say, well, we've all read the Assumption of Moses, we've all read First Enoch, even in those books which aren't in our Bible, they say these things that actually make sense, so we could listen to them as well as Scripture. And so I think it's just good reasoning, potentially for the time, is that Jude is saying both the Old Testament and these non-canonical books are all saying that what the people who are teaching you is false, and you need to know that. And so he's, he's trying to persuade, he's trying to build a case from all the sources that are at his disposal. So there's really not a problem with it. I think some people might look at Jude very suspiciously and say, how can it be a canonical book if it quotes non-canonical books. Does that make sense? Like there's some poison in there and it poisons the whole tree. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I think Jude was simply in touch, he was simply in touch with his times and he was using the knowledge, and books were rare back then, so you didn't have a lot of choices. You didn't have a library full of 30,000 books, you know. He was using what was available to him, what people would have known, and he used that to make his case. Okay, so look at verse eight now. He's going to begin to talk even more about the false teachers, and so this is how it goes. In the very same way, these dreamers, and dreamers sounds like a nice thing, but here it's not meant well. This is actually a pejorative term. Dreamers is somebody who is not thinking clearly. These dreamers pollute their own bodies. We know about their sexual immorality. They reject authority, and also, do you see this next phrase here? it's a bit, this is an interesting thing. This is the other thing that makes Jude so interesting. It says, they slander celestial beings. Okay? Now, I don't know too many teachers who do this. In other words, they don't don't have a high regard for the angelic order. They don't have a high regard for angels. And this is a problem for Jude. And this is a sign of their false teaching. So, I'll just give you an example that when I was a kid, I'd go off to school, and my mom would send me on my way with my lunch, a little brown bag lunch, and she'd say, you know, give me advice, you know, be a good friend, listen to your teachers, don't disrespect the angels. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> I said, Mom, I haven't disrespected angels for three weeks now. No. So isn't that a little strange? I got you, I got you. You're like, what's going on? But this is important to Jude, that we should not disrespect angels. Again, Jude is an interesting book. It's a hidden gem of the New Testament. But this is important to him. Angels are the messengers of God. They're committed to bringing an accurate account of what God has to say to the people. You don't disrespect angels. Evidently, these false teachers were calling into question what angels said and did and this was a problem for Jude. It bugged him a lot. Now, we don't think about that because when was the last time you disrespected an angel? Never. I mean, that just we don't do that. But back then, evidently, it was a problem. Now, we get to a quotation from the Assumption of Moses, this other non-canonical source. Look at verse 9. Even the archangel Michael, one of the best angels all there was, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, as and this is you would have to read the Assumption of Moses to know more about this. But basically, in the Assumption of Moses, Michael and the devil are arguing about the body of Moses who had died and where to bury it or who got it or something. I don't even know. It doesn't matter. But they were arguing. And, they, and Michael was getting frustrated with the devil. Even the greatest angel did not think that he could slander somebody else from the angelic order, even a fallen angel. So he didn't even say to the devil, the Lord, uh, he didn't bring a slanderous accusation. So here we are. I'll pick up in the middle of verse 9. He did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you, which is a quotation from the Old Testament. And so he's saying... Just so that we all understand this, and you can like, forget it again next week. But, but even if an angel wouldn't curse the devil, how much more should a human being not curse a real angel? Sort of one of those how much more sort of arguments. So even the devil gets some respect from Michael. So how much more should we respect a non-fallen angel? So don't respect. I'll just leave it at that. Just stop disrespecting angels. Just stop it. Okay. So, verse 10. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct. Like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. And so he is again saying that their sexual immorality, their their license, is the only thing they understand. They don't understand many other things. And those things that they do understand, which is just taking license, is destroying them. Okay, Take a look at verse 11. It says this. It is a a threefold warning from the Old Testament. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain, Cain who killed his brother. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. This was the prophet in the Old Testament who had some problems. um, And so they've committed the same error as him. We can't go into all of this. And they've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. He was one who came against Moses in unbelief and brought many people with him. And it says the earth opened up and and swallowed them on the spot. So again, he's saying judgment is real in the Old Testament and judgment is coming. The, The teaching that there is no judgment is a false teaching. Okay. So, you know, this is one of those things where, where you're like, Jude, tell us how you really feel. Well, you know, it's, it's a very strong letter, and we should take something from the strength of this letter. This was very important to him. We'll see later why, but it is important that false doctrine is confronted, and it is very important that sound doctrine is promoted. And it's promoted by us understanding the scripture. It's promoted by us seeking the spirit to enlighten us on things that are difficult for us. And not least of which is this letter. It's a challenging letter. It's an interesting letter, but here it is. Uh, let's see how we're doing. Is anyone like fascinated yet? Like, isn't this interesting? Okay, yes, a few hands, yes. Others are like, what is this? this is in our Bible, what? Okay, still, that should be fascinating. Okay. So verse 12 through 16, let's look at that. He has um, a few metaphors that I think are really powerful ones. And then he again quotes from First Enoch. So it says this. These men, these false teachers, are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain blown about by the wind. That's one metaphor. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. That's another metaphor. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up to their shame. That's number three. Or wandering stars, for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. <sighs> okay, let's go on. Verse 14. I don't even have to comment on that. It's like he's mad. He's mad at this false teaching. Now he's actually quoting directly from Enoch, uh, first Enoch, verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. And this is a direct quote. You even have it in quotation marks in your text. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that have, they have done in the ungodly way. Are you getting the point here? There's some ungodliness going on here. And of all the harsh words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Judgment is coming. Absolutely. It's coming against ungodliness. These people are trouble. You have to do something about this. Okay. Let's move on. Verse 17. And this is the turning point. Okay, this is the turning point. And you can tell because the word, the first word of verse 17. But, dear friends, that was all the bad teaching. Now we're gonna talk about what's actually true, okay? But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So he's saying even Jesus warned that some people will come in the later days. Some will say, follow me or I am him, things like that. And these are such men, so don't listen to them. Verse 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. So now some positive words are coming. Work on your faith. Work on your understanding. Know what the scripture says and be subject to the spirit to help you interpret it. Does that make sense? It does. It does. You, your defense against these false teachers is not just all the signs that they are false teachers, but your defense against false teaching is good teaching. is sound teaching and doctrine. So you need to keep your own spiritual and intellectual life subject to the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We'll talk about that in just a minute because that's very important. In fact, this section here, verses 20 through 23, to me, I want to spend the most time... We're almost done, just trust me, but I will spend a little time on that section in just a moment. But uh, to conclude... We have one of the most beautiful benedictions in all of the Bible. It's found in this little book. And we're going, to end it to, we're going to end our time today with this benediction. And it says this, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that a great way to end? Yes, I love that one. So we'll use that as our benediction later. So, um, here's one thing I want maybe to point out, is that this letter is very specific in the false teachings that it's addressing, right? The false teachings that it's addressing is that since Jesus hasn't come, there's no judgment. And since there's no judgment, I can do anything I want. And also that I can disrespect angels, and this is a bad thing, and so we shouldn't do that, right? That's sort of the specific problem that Jude has with these false teachers. And I don't see the same problem in this particular church, okay? Thank God. We have our own false teachings that we have to contend with. And part of that is just a product of being Americans, I'd say. I mean, there's all sorts of false teachings that creep in the front door because we live in a culture... That just like any culture in this world is made up of fallen and broken people. And so we have to fight some other battles. We're not necessarily fighting these battles. But the general principle is a sound one. Which is that false teaching creeps into the church. It hides. It sneaks in. It passes itself for normal. And it leads to brokenness. And I would say, this is the interesting part, is it always leads to slavery. On many levels, it's like the return to Egypt. The people said, oh, let's go back to Egypt because they had watermelons there and garlic and onions. And Oh, great. Well, yeah, but there was also genocide there. There was slavery there. There was you crying out to the Lord day and night for, for some sort of salvation. And so the church is always being pulled back to... to Egypt on some level, back into slavery. Now, I'll give you an example of this. One example, and here's a false teaching that might slip into the church, is that, you know, grace is good and all, but you really have to work for it. You have to show you're a good Christian by having a blameless life and you have to do a lot of good works and if you've done enough of those good works then God will accept you you know and so you even go to a Christian funeral and people say well they were a pretty good guy that was a really nice lady she was really friendly you know as if that would get them into heaven and that's the implication there but the scripture doesn't say that the scripture says like Apostle Paul says, here's a sure saying This worthy of full accept, of acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, right? This is the gospel. The gospel is that no effort of your own will save you. It's all grace, always. But if your works save you, do you see how that pulls us into slavery? Because now you're a slave to being good enough, to knowing enough, to acting in the right way, to looking the right way. Many churches have fallen into this slavery, this false teaching. And they, they give lip service to grace. Oh, yeah, we believe in grace. But by the way they conduct themselves, they are teaching this false gospel of salvation by your works. Now, here's, an ex- here's another example, okay? Health and prosperity, or wealth and prosperity, health and prosperity gospels. Joel Osteen. I shouldn't normally call out another pastor, but I've actually watched him for about five minutes. It was all I could take. I can safely say he's preaching a false gospel. He's very nice. He's got a nice smile. He seems very friendly. The power of positive thinking is actually a true thing, but none of that is the gospel. Nor is it the gospel that if you believe in Jesus Christ, your your wallet's going to get fatter, and you're not going to need to go to the doctor as much. That's not true. The Bible does not promise that. It's false. He's a false teacher who snuck his way in and people love it. We love false teachers because they tell us what we want to hear. The thing about scripture is it tells us what we don't want to hear but what we need to hear. And would you believe that the health and prosperity gospel is another form of slavery? Here's why. What if you get sick? What if your assets go down for some reason? What if the stock market takes a dive? The Dow went down by about 1,000 this last week. It was an interesting week if you like stocks and bonds, right? So what if that happens? Well, your friends in that health and prosperity church will tell you, you you're not praying hard enough. You're not faithful enough. God rewards those who are truly faithful. And if you're, if you're sick, if you have cancer, That's on you. You haven't been faithful enough. You haven't prayed hard enough. And so you get a double whammy. Now you're sick and your friends tell you it's your fault. Some church, that is. And so you think to yourself, I have to work harder. I have to pray harder. It's slavery all over again. It's the trip back to Egypt. I could go on and on, but sound teaching is essential. It's one very important, not only it's one very important part of a complete Christian life, and we should not re- neglect sound teaching. Why? Because your life is the first people many um, first. Your life is the first Bible many people will ever read, and your Bible, what you know and understand and can tell someone else about the gospel, your Bible is the next Bible many people will ever read. Is it coming together now? You need to know the Bible. Because you're going to attract somebody to the faith by your life. And once they start reading that Bible, they're going to come to you and say, what does this mean? What's the assumption of Moses? And you'll be like, ah, it's pseudepigraphical. Don't you love that word? And they'll be like, you guys are a strange cult. I want nothing to do with you. No, they'll say, say, that's interesting. But you need to know because your Bible and what you understand of the Bible is important because you're going to be teaching other people. Okay, I want to end with this. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. I love this. How do we help people who have fallen under the spell of false teaching? And I'm going to tip my, hat, or tip my hand here a little bit. My first inclination, and the Lord has to deal with me severely on this, is to make fun of them. I need to not do that. Okay, so help me be my accountability, uh, unless they're Mormons, and there's just nothing I can do. I mean, it's just, it's just too absurd. It's just asking for it. It's low-hanging fruit. But, but again, we should, what do we do? Somebody who's under the, the sway of false teaching is we don't blast them. We don't make fun of them. We don't demonize them. These are God's children. And what does it say? We help them. Show them mercy. Look at verse 22 again. Look at verse 22. I love this. Be merciful to those who doubt. Verse 23, I love even more. Snatch others from the fire and save them. Get them out of that. Pull them out if they're in a cult, if they're in some false teaching. If you have a friend who's in the Joel Osteen's church church, it's going to take a little work, but you've got to get them out of there if you love them. Because that's slavery. Pull them out of there. Don't demonize them. Don't make fun of them. I'm sorry, Joel, if you're listening. You're God's child, too. Or you really are. In truth, each of us can fall prey to false teaching because our ears want to hear it. We love it. Uh, it gives us what we want. It's a weapon to hurt somebody or control other people. And I hope I, if I fell into false teaching, a friend would help me. Not give up on me, but bring me back to my senses and connect me back to true teaching. So the message is this. If you're strong in your understanding of Scripture and sound teaching, then praise God. You need to help other people. No sound teaching. And if you need to grow in your understanding of Scripture, and some in this room, if you're younger or if you're newer to the faith or you've just neglected this part of your Christian life, and you need to grow in your understanding of Scripture, then you need more knowledge, and you need more insight, and you need a conscious reliance on the Holy Spirit to help you. Then the message here is you need to work at it. This is part of your Christian life, is to develop, as a disciple, your own understanding of what the gospel is. And actually, it's fun if you do it with somebody else. Come to Bible study, right? Study with a friend. Sit down, ask, get a commentary, I have some that you can borrow. We have some in the church library. We're going to sort through which ones are, you know, okay. And, um, but it's fun. You can do it with other people. And you learn and you grow and you see deeper into the mind of God. And that's quite an amazing journey. It's really worth it. So, again, your life is the first Bible that many people will ever read. And your Bible is the second Bible that many people will ever read. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for this hidden gem. Thank you for the strength of this letter, the fervor of your servant Jude. And help us to not give up on people. Help us to love people who are living in falsehood. Help us to snatch them out of the fire and bring them to you. And Lord, I pray you help us learn your word and know it and live it and speak it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.